Hello, story seekers. I'm Nico. I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Tiny Bookcase. And coincidentally, our favourite part of the week: stories, chatter, and probably a fair few obscenities. What's not to love? Now, our regular listeners will know how it works, but for newcomers, we have both written a story to the same shared prompt, and we're about to share those stories with each other and you for the first time. Then we'll workshop them on mic. This week, the prompt is reverse. And so is the order of things. So I shall go first. Reverse. I shall tell you a tale of the hero with no name. It is not long in the telling, for theirs is a story difficult to grasp. Like a slimy fish in the fetid river of time, it is elusive. Heroes are both born and made. It is false to say that a hero may make a name for themselves, when it is given to them at birth by fate. The birth of our hero took place out of time and beyond the sight of fate. They were born at the moment the sun stood still atop the solstice sky, after nine months carried within a wombless mother. The mother, confused and in agony, crawled into a forgotten boar den to hide the strangeness from their folk. Mother and child waited for the norns to arrive, with the needles and thread of their craft, to stitch their hook into the babe's skin and bind them forever into the braid of fate. The sun rolled down from its high perch, and the mother, knowing that something was awry, refused to nurse the child, and instead abandoned them in the boar's den. The babe did not perish. Instead, reared by savage pigs, they thrived. Meanwhile, the uncaring, revolving wheel of the Norns continued to spin around and around, dragging the life-loomed threads through to them and into their hands. Those fingers of destiny continued to deftly entwine the fates of all into a timeless braid. It was a curious sight. Before them were countless threads connected to the waking world, each twitching and elongating with the passing of deeds and time. After them, the stiff braid of death snaked into the mists of myth, there to coil neatly in a forgotten hoard of lived lives. Such did our hero find when they reached the Norns, in a place so saturated with life and death that time passed strangely. The wheel stopped as the Norns stared. Our hero held in their hand a long blade forged from metal fallen from the stars. It too bore no name. Names, as the Norns knew, trap those that bear them like a bird in a snatching net. Who is this? spoke the maiden. A hero with no name, one we do not know, spoke the mother. They bring our end, spoke the crone. Our hero, seeming to glow with purpose in that moment, spoke next. Your end is our beginning. I name you the Moirai, the Parkai, Matres, Hudalura, and Norns. You knot us into a shape that pleases you and consign us to an endless cycle of deeds with no future. You use our identity to control our fates, 
no more. The star metal blade slashed at them, ribboning their cloaks and gashing their bodies, and from the wounds poured the sunlight of stolen time. The flesh between the ruinous marks of the blade peeled back and rolled into nothingness, leaving our hero alone with our strands, the wheel, and the unfinished end of the fated braid. We can only wonder what might have been lost had they sliced through the Norn's braid in that moment. Instead, our hero set aside their life and their blade, and began to reverse the work of the Norn spinning wheel. Rather than forwards, they span it backwards, dragging the braid from the mists of death and unspooling our threaded fate. Their hands worked quickly to unpick the ancient work of the Norns and fed it backwards as their foot worked the pedal which spanned the wheel. With those threads came our tales of old, our Beowulf, our Ixander, our Gilgamesh. Our hero toils on still, pulling the lost lives of humanity back from death and returning our history to us. Our hero was the first and truest teller of tales. This I humbly submit. That felt like podcast deep lore, my man. You think so? I, th- I feel like that could go on our, our website. <laughs> it's like the, the origin of stories. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. I wrote down the phrase, instead, reared by savage pigs, because that has definitely not appeared in enough tales. I just I need that to be in everything. <laughs> in pretty much everything I write for this podcast, there's always one line that's meant for you. And you never you never miss it, which is probably a good sign. <laughs> uh, you just you know which bits of my brain to prod. <laughs> reared by savage pigs. No, it's... Um, did, um... Yeah, go on, sorry. The, I, I, the, another line I wrote down was names trap those who bear them, which I think yes. is a really cool little uh, like world-building nugget because obviously we've got a lot of implications of things like the Fae and demons and vampires and all those things where true names bear importance. That's true. Yeah, but, that has sort of permeated to that to that sort of level, hasn't it? Like when you're, you know, this this is a story about stories, about the weaving of narratives. So for that to matter at that level, you know, for, for the one who is unweaving time in order to give us stories, that's, yeah, I think that's a really actually clever play. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, I, I've always been quite taken with this idea of, of the norns and the, the sort of the fates because yeah. they are, they are just completely embedded inside every society that, that, our civilization is built on it's always women isn't it it's always three women they're, yeah they're always female yeah so i mean like the the greeks had it the romans had it um they sort of um there's a there's a group of people well the celts had it as well obviously and obviously yeah. the, and obviously the sort of um the vikings and the sort of norse had it um but there's also a a group of people called the i think they're called the hurrians um, who dwelt around the Euphrates in about sort of three thousand BC, and they they had this as part of their religion these um, these sort of like mistresses of fate sort of thing. Um, so this is this is just a permanent concept inside 
the human psyche, I think. No, Ben. It's about the three aliens that look like ladies that came to Earth and showed us how to make pyramids. If you don't <laughs> understand that, then you're obviously not paying attention. <laughs> well, I, I th- obviously, I'm not going to say that that's what I believe at all. But like, I do think there's something in this idea of like some early human cultures having matriarchies. Yes. Um, and then you can sort of see where this is coming from then, can't you? Um, but uh, yeah, the, the concept of names trapping people is um, is quite important, it's quite central to the tale, because obviously I've gone for a kind of, like, who do you think the hero is? Like, what oh. what, what, what conjures in your mind this hero that did this? I, I don't even know. Like, I, you know that, that idea in the hero, it's the hero of the hero's journey, you know? Like, this this blank slate that you can put yourself onto. That sort of paragon of that yeah, archetype. It's, you know, I, I did get stuck a little bit on the reared by pigs, but I was, <laughs> you know, just this almost, I don't think I ever got a face. Just a, if, if you were going to be like, Aliens are a good example. You're gonna be like, "This is man," you know, like uh, Da Vinci's Adam, where he's all mm-hmm. splayed out. It yeah. Just, yeah, just, just a man. So it's interesting. So there's no gender on this character at all. It's always they yeah. them, um, and no physical description. Nothing. You don't even yeah. see most of their lives. You see the moment they're born, and then the moment they take this important step. At the end, um, and I, I, I sort of it's... I wanted to play with that idea of um, of people that are beyond the confines of uh, gender norms. Yes. Whilst whilst also doing a bit of a deep dive on ancient mythology, uh, which I, I assume it has been done before by many people and probably better, but I think it's one of the first times that I've tried to do this. But yeah. this this idea of this um, genderless hero. Or at least it's not sort of, yeah. They're they're a genderless hero, um, being born by a wombless mother. Like it's all very beyond the uh, confines of what we would assume in sort of like uh, ancient history. Um, yeah. So, so my point there is that because the the Norns in this instance weave fate that you know they they see all and they they know all and they they are destiny. They yeah. can't see this because it's beyond. Their outside of their parameters, exactly, yeah. yeah, and that's what actually that's where the power of the hero comes from because they they're sort of coming from out of left field. They, they, it's they're broadsiding this organized structure that just keeps going, keeps repeating itself through different epochs of human existence. Um, so there's there's a degree of rebellion in the hero, which I think is it definitely interested me. I like that a lot. I think it's really interesting to break down the the gender norms on this, mostly because obviously you know the reared by savage pigs things. My brain immediately you know goes to Romulus and Remus raised by yes. wolves, Mowgli raised by wolves, all these mm-hmm. classic characters, and it's always a young man. And yeah, even though you you gave no uh, masculine pronouns, I my brain gave me a kind of like Achilles type hero really. Mm-hmm. And that's totally reasonable to to, yeah, to to assume that. It's interesting to see what the the kind of cultural uh, the background of these sort of narratives gives you. Especially talking about the Norns when it's fated warriors, we do have 
historically a, a habit of of it being you know the one man that could do this thing and i think it's it's actually really interesting for you to have tested me like that and <laughs> me come up default <laughs> do you know what i mean i don't know whether it was a test but i think it's just because it, it's definitely not designed to trip people up or anything i'm not i'm not being like ah you you think in binary i'm not doing that um yeah. but i am doing that to the nortons if that makes sense like they are yeah. this is outside of their ken and therefore it ends them it changes the status quo of the world and the way that uh, civilization works yeah um yeah it's also extremely short this is the shortest thing i've ever put up into the podcast really yeah it's just shy of 700 words, so it's technically outside the limit. Good God. Um, but the prose is so dense. I don't know if you could probably tell from the way that I said it. I, I, I performed it. But um, the prose is so dense that you've got to say it slowly. Because it's... I, yeah. It didn't feel like, you know, under 700 words. It just didn't. Mm. I think it's because there's a lot of story in there. There's, there's It's a small bite, but it's full of flavour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was I was trying to pump it up. I was, but I just I think I added about twenty words to it, and then I was just like this. This is it. This is the whole story. I could add more stuff about place and time and setting, but it doesn't need it. This is the point of the story. Yeah, I think you're right though. That it's any anything you add has the potential to become bloat, and especially mm. when you're trying to keep it. You know, the whole point of this tale is it's outside of place and time, and so the more context you give, the less effective it becomes. I think. I agree. I think you made absolutely the right call mm. in terms of saying no that this this story is finished and I should leave it here. I will of course get uh, my punishment from Eusterus for going underneath the the word floor though. Well, you remember what it is? It's one lash for every word you're under the count. So <laughs> I'm well I'm dead. I'm dead. That's too many lashes. But it gives you one little special kiss for every word you are over, so you've got so many kisses to drag in. <laughs> All right, I have to balance them out, do I? Yeah. Well, it's your turn. You know the rules, boy. <laughs> there he is. It's been a while. Right, your turn. I'm leaving now. <laughs> I'm fascinated to see what your take on reverse is. Okay. Reverse. Next. The demon's voice was surprisingly pleasant, if a little oily. It jarred horribly with the boiling ocean of tormented screams on which it floated. Edith Collins, of number 23, Denfield Lane, dutifully stepped forward. Esinburgh was British enough to have its denizens master the art of the queue, and Edith had decades of tutting, elbowing, and dear, dear, dearing under her quilted belt. That's me! The demon took her in. Comfortable shoes, sensible trousers, nice cardigan with an affixed brooch, and right there between the folds of her lilac blouse was a cruciform. It looked expensive, at least in human terms. Down here it wouldn't get you much, but hey, what would? Right, to confirm, the demon looked at its great volume, bound in the leather of particularly sinful dinosaurs. You are one Edith Collins, 83 years old, from Edinburgh, Scotland, Earth, the mortal plane. The old lady wrinkled her nose. Her half-moon spectacles, balanced delicately on it, were nearly forced to rely on their emergency chain. Yes, look, I think there's been a mistake. I 
she lifted her chin imperiously. I'm a Christian. As such, I shouldn't be here. She looked around admonishingly, as though peering at the dusty curtains and smoke-stained carpet of one of her lesser neighbours. As though to highlight her point, a red-hot poker was applied to someone in the distance, eliciting a bellow of, Oh, Jesus Christ! <laughs> Jesus did not respond. Right, I'll be honest with you, dear. You all say that, but, records of records, and you must have transgressed. It's him upstairs that makes these rules, so you'll have to make a complaint on the Almighty's record-keeping. I just work here. For the longest of moments, Edith was torn. You couldn't really argue with God, could you? On account of his being God. But Edith had been a devout servant of the Lord Almighty of her entire life. There was no way she'd have transgressed against his holy kingdom of light. The demon looked on impassively. It had seen, in its long tenure, plenty of beings trying to work through their lives in order to pinpoint exactly when they'd earned an eternity of torture. Eternity of torture, of course, is a bit of a misnomer. Even demons get the bank holidays to spend some time with little Timothy and Santa Lacol, the unblooded. Listen, Edith, you seem nice. We can check your record for you. The demon tore a page from the book as he said this. It moaned in strange, howling pleasure as he did so. Edith, who had only let her husband mount her thrice and had three wonderful <laughs> God-fearing children to show for it, recoiled from the orgasmic utterance. The demon unfurled the page and let it drop to sit at the top of his counter. Forwards or reverse? it asked. Its eyes, like piss holes in the snow, fixed on the elderly woman. Choose wisely. It's a one-time question. Reverse, said Edith firmly. I've done it forward already. Come now, demon, show me my sins. The demon rolled those deep-set eyes. It hated it when people got all high and mighty. It was only flipping clerical stuff. Right you are, looking for sins in reverse. Let's go. Edith felt herself suddenly in her bed, her family surrounding her. They watched her undie. Tears rolled up cheeks. It was all happening very fast, but she felt as if it was in real time. She watched squares of tablet shortbread leap back onto plates from her grandchildren's hands, before jumping back into the tray, unbaking themselves, and returning their constituent parts to the cupboard. She watched her children become young again. Her dear husband Harold returned from the grave. She watched the world lose technology, and eventually she watched herself slide, feet first, back into the womb. She found herself once again at the gates of hell. A queue was forming behind her. The demon was looking at a readout. Yes, a big spike at childbirth, obviously. Original sin. Of course, that's all covered by the big J. He scribbled something into a notebook. Yes, really, by your Christian standards. You did a pretty good job of that. Interesting. The demon did not point out that she was also dangerously boring. Right, so we're going to run you through again, but... 
The demon lifted hundreds of sheaths of paper from a drawer that had extended impossibly from his desk. This time, I'm going to add in the memories of anyone you've negatively impacted during your life. I have done no such thing, Edith snorted, thinking she'd already achieved a get-out-of-torment-free card. I've been a good Christian all my life. Yes, said the demon, as it cast the howling sheets around her. That's the problem. Edith again woke in her funeral bed. But now it was as if tendrils were fared out into the world. She watched the tablet unmake itself, sure. She watched Harold come back from the dead. She watched millions of the poor starve to death as she scraped mounds of leftover roast dinner into the bin. She watched Mohammed Ishtar, the cab driver she had met on a weekend trip to Glasgow, be unmolested by police, unreported as he was for being dangerous and suspicious. She watched that young homosexual, Marcus Englesby, who she had chastised for his sins, unhang himself. She felt, for those long moments, the suffering of those around her. The hundreds of lives her words had shaped, and the misery she had poured into others' hearts, because a book had told her to be hateful of them. The demon watched, disappointed as this slid across his readout, and Edith's emotional state did not change. As he waited for her to be unborn once again, he lit a cigarette and took a long draw. She wasn't going to learn anything from this. They never did, the righteous types. If anything, she'd probably like it inside. So many kindred spirits and all that. It had only put about 3% of the people she'd wronged through her inability to recognise her faults into the equation so far. It rifled for more pages in the drawers and looked back along the forming queue. It would work through lunch, it decided. She was going to take a long time. That was fantastic. Thank you, man. I really, really enjoyed that. That was, uh, it felt like a, like a rich piece of cake, or indeed a bit of shortbread biscuit. Um, okay. Quite simple in its construction, but mm. everything, you sort of lingered on things just the right amount, and it had, there was a richness to the tale. Um, that has uh, a fair few layers of meaning and also just like a just a big dollop of the everyday in it and that's something that i think that you capture really well often in your stories this sort of the kind of uh, banality of evil the sort of mundanity of everyday working life god i'm i'm fascinated by it. i'm fascinated by mundanity yeah no you can tell and our, our acceptance of it <laughs> yeah i i think that's probably uh, I probably should have spotted it already, really, but that is probably the biggest emerging theme of your writing, I think, Yeah, is that. And for good reason. It's it's fascinating because it's what 90% of... Well, what 100% of people do with 90% of their time. Yeah. Nothing. Like, just pointless nine-to-five jobs and petty little admin disputes and things like that. You know, there's stuff that makes you... Like, nobody's nobody's on their deathbed and thinking... Oh, I, I wish I'd clocked him more overtime. Like that's not happening yeah. to anybody. It's, 
it's so against human nature as well, isn't it? It's, this is actually really interesting because, you know, not your story was about the the passage of time and the growing of tales, which is very much in human nature. And I, I, I'm fascinated by the mundane because we've all seemingly accepted it. And I meet a lot of people in my day-to-day life who just don't, they don't pursue creativity in any form. And I think a big part of it is this this idea now that you have to be able to monetize everything. Yeah. And that you, you shouldn't sing or draw or write unless you're good. Mm. And I mean, first of all, you don't get good at something unless you do it a lot. That's true. But also you should be you should just create because it feels good to create. And it's good for you to use those bits of your brain and there are people yeah. for who that yeah. That must just completely have stagnated by now, and that makes me really sad. Yeah, no, I, but I also think that there's there are other ways to be creative. Like you know, if someone someone um, like turns their hand to woodworking, or you know, oh, no, yeah, things, yeah, like, absolutely, yeah, yeah. There's like, and you can find creativity in stuff like cooking and and you know things that are every day. Is my point, I think. But it's the it's the approach. It's the way you approach something. So rather than just yeah. like cooking a meal for four because you need to sustain life without ever asking why <laughs> and i think that, that's, that's different a, isn't it a big part of what we we've got wrong not you and i <laughs> but society i'm sure we have got a lot wrong that, though but oh yeah we've tons but i'm not going to call us out on the podcast <laughs> um <laughs> but like there there are people where they, they can't take joy in cooking because if all you can afford to do is you know, go to Iceland, get nuggets and chips because you don't have the money to buy good ingredients or you're not lucky enough to be in a position where you can, you know, spend a few hours at the stove, that that part of your life gets forcibly, I'm going to create a word, mundanated, you know, like the the joy of cooking is disallowed. But that is why, you know, you you see those, you know, I've, I've been in that economic situation where, all of a sudden you, you've got an afternoon it's like hey we've got some eggs and flour and milk should we make pancakes and you mm. you make your own pancake batter and the simple act of doing that and then leaving it for half an hour so that the uh, the gluten in it can stretch and and then like obviously getting the first one wrong because that's part of pancake deep law and you know that it's not a complicated recipe, but because it's something you're doing for you, it can be wonderful. Yes, I agree. It's... Or, or indeed for other people, mm. like it can be an expression of love. In, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we could probably wax lyrical about cooking for, for the entirety of the podcast because we both do enjoy oh, it a lot. The tiny cook case. The tiny... Comes. Wait, that's, that's like one letter away from a very different thing. <laughs> <laughs> the tiny cook case. Um, gender bent Billy Connolly as your lead. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Edith. <laughs> Edith Connolly, yes. I I really like it when you when you do the. I think it's the it's Billy Connolly's intonations. I think it's so ingrained in your Scottish accent, like how you learn oh, to yeah. do it, that it's it's difficult. But there were a couple there that I was just like I was just it was making me laugh even when she wasn't saying anything funny or even intentionally funny, your performance gave it an extra layer, which added to that richness that I was talking about before. Um, Edinburgh, Edinburgh is just British enough to know how to cue. 
I, d- I think you've offended so many people with that. So I'm going to I'm going to say right now that I'm going to take a stance and I'm just going to step away from that step away from that remark. That's got nothing to do with me. That's all Nico. Um, and, and <laughs> Sorry, God, I should let you defend yourself. Go on. All I'm going to say is I know if I'd said. Uh, you know, and, and Scotland's good at queuing as well. I probably would have got we're not English. Fuck you. Yeah. So, yeah. The point True. is, I think you're all lovely, and Edinburgh is actually really, really nice. So, I'd love to go. I've never, I've never been to Edinburgh. Have you not been? We'll go. No, go I've been go. to I've been to like the hinterlands of Scotland, but not not any of the cities, um, which is kind of silly, sort of backwards, really. Yeah. Um, sinful dinosaurs that made me chuckle. I think that was the first one that really got me in the yeah. in the story. Um, and then the sort of the only, my only note about that was that later on it then it then the book then was capable of giving like orgasmic utterances i think was your phrase so were those dinosaur orgasms or were they human the pages are linked to people right so that's why they were making sounds okay so that's why she was shocked by her own like orgasmic cries he ripped her page out oh from the thrice yeah yeah but they're bound in dinosaur leather from you know Bad dinosaur boys. I think potentially, unless I unless I missed it, I think you might need another line there just to okay. make it absolutely clear that it's she's being horrified by her own noises. Yeah. Um, rather, because I think I initially I may have missed something, but I, I initially read it as like she, you know she was doing that sort of demure, demure thing of being horrified by other people's sexuality that you sometimes find in repressed people like this. Um. So it's even worse that it's her own. She's so repressed, yeah. but it's her own. So I think potentially worth dwelling on that a little bit more. Yeah, I think um, you're right. Cool. Uh, the I just work here demon. That's. I think we've already covered this really with talking about the sort of um, that mund- mundanity that we was you know that you inject into your work. But I think this might be the second or maybe even third time that you've written a demon like that. Uh, we we had uh, Satan before, I think, Satan. quite a long time ago. Yes. I think that must be what I'm remembering. Yes, yeah, Yeah, no, that's it. Yeah, Um, so that was good. Good to see it. It's good to see it. I like. I like that a lot. I could sort of imagine the demon had a like. I just work here on a mug, and they'd be able to sort of tap it and go, "Look, I just come on. Can we can we move this along? There's a cue. You don't have to be are you scared to work here, but it helps. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The the. Right, this is this one's quite interesting because how you build tension in the story is always quite important. I think so. Yeah. The 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 obviously the main bit of the story is is her not understanding why she's in hell because yeah by by a um because a book that she read told her that she's been living the right you know she's lived by the word of a book yeah. basically written by people um but when she gets sort of jumped back into her you know after she sees her life the first time. That's when you start to see the queue forming, and that's—I don't know whether that's a British thing again—but like this idea of being being difficult enough that a queue forms behind you is mm. one of the most socially unacceptable things to do in our culture. I think. Oh God, yeah. Um, it, it, obviously, it's not up there with some actual crimes, but like short of crime, I think that's probably pretty high on the list. God, um, so how much? When you're in a queue, like you're the next one, and the, you can see the person in front of you getting like more animated at the train station. Yeah, you're yeah. like, just buy your ticket, you prick. 
I'm gonna miss my train because of you. <laughs> I was. Oh. Uh, I, I I accompanied a family member to the opticians the other the other day, and they were so poorly organised in there that, <laughs> that that it was actually just laughable. That somehow the entire room was filled with staff. There were twelve staff in the room, which is a ridiculous amount for a high street shop. Uh, and there were about twice that in terms of customers, but like often they're in groups of two or three. And all the staff were apparently working flat, like running around rushing, very stressed, but everybody was waiting and everybody was pissed off. Like that, <laughs> that, that like, it was, it was, it was like some source of hell because what should have been like a, it was a glasses pickup. You know, when you go to pick up your glasses and it takes about 10 minutes, you arrive at the time. You pick your glasses up. They put you, you put them on the fit. Yeah. You make them fit. Yeah. yeah, and then the the person who who's given them to you sort of goes, "Are they snug on your?" You know that kind of shit. And then you are out of there. That is all that took. It took an hour, an hour and ten. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So I was just pacing around in this thing like a like a, a lion that's recently been introduced to captivity. It was horrible, man. So that kind of environment of um, the sort of the social graces of when to queue and when not to queue and how to behave when you're in a when you're holding up other people's time. I assume that is universal, but I, I connected to it in a very British way. Yeah. So it that's just a minor note that potentially some other cultures might not get that. But I think that's okay. Um and I I think my favourite gag of the whole thing, it wasn't actually a laugh out loud one, which is unusual for Ooh. me when I'm listening to your one. It was the spike of sin at birth being the original sin. And, oh, I, uh, I, I really that's that joke is where this whole story started. Okay, that's the best joke in in the whole story for sure. Yeah, like there there are loads of really good jokes in there, but that the way that you not only wrote it but then executed it with your performance was top notch. So well done. Thank you. I like that a lot. Oh. Two interesting stories, I think. Very very different, as you say. Both with, uh, interestingly, our link here is we've both got uh, characters with uh, no pronouns. So gender, like this genderless demon and this genderless mm -hmm. hero acting as a sort of yin and yang through our stories. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. It's, uh, I definitely did, I think probably from the way that you were performing it, I definitely did have some sort of like idea of a sort of hermaphroditic kind of demon. Yeah. In the, in the story. But... Um, yeah, no, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Thanks for that. So normally, this is roughly where we would end this episode. We would, yeah. we'd be like, oh, that was that was nice. We've heard some stories. We've chatted about them, and we'll release people back to the wild. But uh, this week, this past week, Nico's band, Dead Man's Whiskey, um, the band that he is in, uh, released a new music video called Masquerade, um, and this is sort of heralding uh, a new album that's on the way, isn't it? Yes, it is. So what we're going to do is we are going to now watch this mu this music video together and uh, then we'll cut out the time, obviously, so you're not just waiting and listening to empty dead air. <laughs> um, and then we'll come back and we'll discuss it. So if you want to do it with us, feel free to pause the podcast right now and we will uh, we'll go away, listen to it, watch it together, and then you'll be able to sort of see what we're talking about. When we come back, right? Pause now. What a hell of time that is! Yeah, absolutely, hell of time that man. It's 
uh, I felt my heart rate go up just watching it. It was so it's so much fun, whilst also having yeah. a big punch to it. So, how do you go about telling stories in a music video, like you personally? It's an interesting one. What generally happens? So we um, there's a great guy called Adam Barker, a company called Video Inc. He's our our director. Right. And what generally happens is we write a really overcomplicated narrative. And I sit and I storyboard it out and we give it to Adam and he says, okay, that's great. But how can you tell that story in a way people can understand <laughs> in, okay. you know, three and a half minutes or whatever. And what it comes down to is boiling those concepts down. So instead of being like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll have a, you know, we'll have Tori's character here. We'll have the, the like the fat cats sort of throwing money at her and you don't need to show it. No, because it's all it's told through. I mean, expression through dance has been a thing forever. Like you don't need to say anything because you can tell that story with physicality. And I mean, with with this one, this is this is Tori Davis that you're talking about here, isn't it? Yes, the, the so Tori Davis is. Uh, she's an incredible dancer, mm-hmm. absolutely phenomenal. Like we, there was no choreography really, right beyond. Um, so we came in, we, you know, like, these are your beats. This is what you're hitting. We're going to have you, you know, your act as if you want to do your, your normal flowing dance style, but the ropes are going to prevent you from doing it. So you can't spin because you're going to get caught. Mm. And, you know, said, you know, eventually we'll, we'll have you, uh, you get free and then, you know, we'll, we'll put uh, we put a few different songs on. So like we put some like hard techno on, we put some classical music on. So just dance to all of them, and then we'll cut together. So it, it may sound like a silly question, but you aren't just playing the track at her repeatedly. This track, you are you are playing other kinds of music. So for our performance, obviously we're playing the track, yeah, and playing yeah. along to it, and we did a couple of takes more for timing and stuff where Tori could hear masquerade. But when we wanted to elicit specific types of emotion through the dance, it's actually a lot better for to say to Tori, you know, if you were going to do an angry dance, what would you dance to? Okay. If you were going to do a, like a really open free dance, what would you dance to? Because, you know, if she can improvise to something she knows, we can always move it around. So it's on the right beats. Hmm. And there, there's a lot of stuff in here where we tried to, uh, like, you know, if Tori's thrashing her hands down, we'll try and cut between shots of Charlie playing the drums so that there is uh, a, an implied link between us as as this big uh, metaphor for for the creative. So that, that is the central the central beat of the story, isn't it? This This idea of needing to sell your soul for success. In yeah. a creative endeavor. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's it's a strange one. It it's it's tough in the music industry, and everyone says it. I know that in all these industries, it is. But especially once you reach a certain point, that you have to. It becomes a game that's not just about. It's okay. You can play well enough to for people to turn up and now you've got to learn the rules and you've got to play by those rules. And we're not particularly good at it, uh, that bit. 
Well, playing but by the we rules. are good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we are good at saying, well, actually, no, we can achieve that same effect if we do this. So we're just going to do that. We're going to do it the way that we want to do it. And that's that's what the song's about, really. It's about that, uh, like not wanting your your freedom of expression and creativity to be uh, sort of stifled by the the powers that be, whoever they are. So I've got a follow up question then, which is that I, th I think this is your seventh music video, and I, I'm I'm including yeah. some of the smaller ones where you're just recording, potentially recording yourselves, like early yeah. on, we're talking like War Machine and stuff like that. I don't I don't know how produced they were. Camera um, on a tripod, yeah. Camera on a tripod, yeah. I thought so. Um, I mean, they're still good, but it's you know that's that's largely to do with the sound because the sound is so refined and well put together. Um, whereas now you're talking like this feels very well produced and it it looks amazing, and the last few have like it's it's really gone up. So what have you what have you learned about t storytelling through music videos that you applied to this one from your previous endeavors? So the the biggest one to look at is if you watch our video for Racing Bullet, we mm -hmm. try to tell a story and we've got multiple locations and stuff happening. And and it's, you can, if I, if someone told you what the story was meant to be, you'd be like, oh yeah, I see it. But the important lesson to learn was that people will, will work it out if you give them the pieces and don't be precious about what the story is meant to be let okay. people find it like if your lyrics are good and the shots are interesting that's enough because there'll be people who watch this and they'll just be like cool that lady did a dance and that's okay like if you if they enjoy it that's all it takes incredible fucking dance as well she's she's a oh, phenomenal yeah. move mover and shaker like it's just bonkers. Like, absolutely thrilling to watch and yeah I, I think the the important thing is that they have to complement each other. It's very easy to be like, oh, what if we did this for the video? But the the two have to they have to work on their own. So if you muted that, it would still be interesting to watch Tori dance. Yeah, you'd still be like, wow, look at the way she moves. Same as you'd hope if the song came on the radio without the video, you'd still go, that's a cool song. And it's yeah. it's about those two things uh, being complementary to each other and working in tandem to to give you the right effect. Like if we go, I, I think the last one before this was Breakout, the last official video. That's the one with that you one in a jail was, cell, right? Yes. Yes. So with that one, it was like the location is going to do a lot of the storytelling. Yeah, in good the point. same way that in this one, Tori does a lot of the storytelling. Like mm -hmm. you can see because of how well she performs that that's what it's meant to be. Whereas with me in a jail cell, it's like the metaphor doesn't have to be difficult. It's so just... you're basically practicing. I don't mean to boil it down by saying basically, but the the central tenant is something that you are applying um, from short storytelling, which is show don't tell. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you don't yeah. want to put up a, a bit at the beginning, and you do see in some videos actually where it's like, ten years ago, Nico was put in a jail. Just, just show me in the jail. Just put, put him in the jail. Yeah. Put it there. Let people figure it out. Let him have a good time. So visual cues then. Um, so obviously you've got the the mask from this idea of the masquerade is on the floor in front of Tori, and yeah. you see it in most shots. Um, yes. The implication there is that it's. 
she's like she's discarded her mask and that's when she's been restricted is that right yes yeah perfect i think that works really really well it, so there are yellow lines on the floor below her that look i don't think they're exactly like this but they look a little bit like double yellows on a on a british street in terms of and for anyone that doesn't know what that means that means where you can't park you will you will get you will get towed or fined or whatever yeah um what what story relevance did that have or have, have i missed have i missed it they're just they're just really there in our <laughs> location just there. we couldn't do anything about them Okay, that was me trying to read too much into it there, I think, potentially. But that's um, kind of the fun of it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I just, because what, 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 what I thought it was, was because she's slightly to the left of those, I thought it meant that she was, um, like, actually in the middle of the road as well. Do you, do you yeah. see what I mean? Like, she was creatively sort of on her way, um, crossing a road. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's that's what it was. That's what it was. Yeah, cool. No worries. Yeah, cool, 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 cool. That, re that reminds me actually that I think I probably I might have already told this anecdote before, but when I went to go and see a um, a production of King John in Stratford, um, I, I had a Q and A with the lead actor that played John, and it was it was a really nice performance. It had loads of um, sort of out of time kind of stuff, very anachronistic music and all this kind of thing. And there's a bit where he dances as john dies spoiler alert for an ancient play um <laughs> and, and history uh there are no spoilers he, for history ben he he dances as, he, as he, he gets poisoned by some monks basically and he just starts like dancing and it's it's too uh begging um you know the frankie valley um yeah, yeah, yeah and he's just dancing around and it's quite chaotic and he's just like his body's just jerking around the place and i asked him afterwards i was i said were your movements deliberately meant to evoke uh, the uh, like a, a body being hanged, you know, like a hangman's jig, um, as you know the rope snaps short and then the the legs bounce around? And he did exactly yeah. what you did just then, where he went, "Yep, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely." <laughs> it definitely wasn't just how I moved that particular night. Um, <laughs> so it's always fun to read too deep into things, I think. Uh, and then I think. Oh, there was one. There was one really good bit that I liked of her performance. Was there's a bit where she she inverts for the first time as she, so her left arm is is over her body and her right arm is over her body, and then she she she's essentially upside down looking at the camera, and yeah. it's the first time you see her smile in the music video. And I thought that was potentially because she was starting to get control of the situation by manipulating where the ropes were. Yeah. Um, and then we obviously know she she sort of fights her way free and. Afterwards, when she can dance on encumbered, there's a lot more smiling. So, I liked the way that 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 um, the, the the story beats of her building up to getting free were included right from the off. Um, I thought, it, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm waxing lyrical about it a little bit because I fucking love it. I think it's a I think it's a it's a work of art. I think the the music video is great. The song is fantastic, and um, I'm just pretty. Often, I find myself just in awe of how you can do that, and this, and everything else that you do. So, I think that's I think that's definitely worth noting, and giving you some kudos I'm going for it. To accept it with a big dose of love, and also say I, I, I am so bad at <laughs> you complimenting me. I hate it. Um, I know, I know. It's I'm it's borderline abuse at this stage. Whenever I compliment you, but I'm going to keep <laughs> doing it. I assume I'll end up in some kind of demon waiting room, queuing behind some last from Edinburgh. Nice to someone, were you? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, 
people know where they can get our podcast, obviously, but where can they find Dead Man's Whiskey? Uh, we're on all of the normal music streaming places, so Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music. Uh, you can go to deadmanswhiskey.co.uk to find out about tour dates and merch. And uh, you can follow us on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook. Just Dead Man's Whiskey everywhere you might go. And that's whiskey with an E. Whiskey with an E. Fucking fantastic. Right. Stories and a music video and a little interview. A snuck a little interview on you. <laughs> oh, what a day. What, what a, a day. lovely day. What a lovely day. That'll do us for now, I think. We'll see you all next week with a guest. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Tiny Bookcase. Remember to subscribe, otherwise you're going to miss out on the future fun. Also, tell a friend. If you like this episode, link them to it. We'd be tremendously grateful. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny, Facebook at The Tiny Bookcase, and Instagram at Bookcase Tiny for updates. Speaking of supporting the podcast... Well, magic can only take one so far. The tiny bookcase is supported by the generosity of its patrons. Those kind souls have really kept my belly full the last year. Let's cast a spell for them, shall we? For a Magnificent Beardery, let's cast the Chinicus Folliculale spell on Gary Laird. For rich ginger tones on the scalp, let us cast the Orangi Hedondo spell for Scott Byrne. And for general fabulousness, why not the Ulala la Mother spell on Matthew McLaren? How do you come up with that shit, man?